Sometimes going to the grocery store can be chaotic. There doesn't seem to be enough time to check the list, make sure everything is there, search for the best prices, and take the time to make sure you get the best quality meat. So let ButcherBox help you out. Giving you peace of mind, ButcherBox delivers high-quality meat and seafood that you can trust straight to your door. No grocery carts required. Humanely raised, no antibiotics or hormones, 100% grass-fed, free-range, and crate-free, what more can you ask for? What about free shipping, customized box plans, exclusive member deals, recipe inspirations, tips, and tricks? You really can't go wrong with ButcherBox. Sign up at butcherbox.com slash morning cup and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breasts, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com slash morning cup and use code morning cup to choose your free for a year offer plus get $20 off your first order. There were two more murders 15 miles away. When police arrived, they found the telephones and electricity lines. We have a weird homicide. The scene described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird... Morning. Cup of murder. There are some cases where the murder doesn't even begin to scratch the surface. Some cases have so many twists and turns, it's hard to keep up. On August 28, 2003, a man with a collar around his neck walked into a bank and revealed a small piece of a very complicated and very involved heist. So if you like your coffee hot but your bones chilled, sit back and start your day with a morning cup of murder. At approximately 2.28 p.m. on August 28, 2003, a middle-aged man named Brian Douglas Wells, born November 15, 1956, walked into the PNC Bank in Erie, Pennsylvania with a cane in one hand and a strange bulge protruding from his T-shirt. The 46-year-old walked over to a teller and calmly handed her a note that read, gather employees with access codes to vault and work fast to fill bags with $250,000. You have only 15 minutes. When the teller flicked her eyes away from the note, Brian lifted his shirt to reveal a box-like device dangling from his neck. According to the note, it was a bomb and everyone inside the building was in danger. The teller told Brian that there was no way to get into the vault at that time. So instead, filled the bag with $8,702 in cash and handed it over the counter. The pizza delivery man turned bank robber, took the bag and, while sucking on a complimentary lollipop, walked out of the bank and into his car. Thankfully, the man and his bomb didn't make it too far, and about 15 minutes later, state troopers were stopping his car in a nearby parking lot, surrounding him, and putting him face down on the ground so they could cuff his hands. Frantically, Brian began to explain that while making a delivery, he was accosted by a group of black men, who chained the bomb around his neck at gunpoint and forced him to rob the bank. His tone quickly turned into desperation as he started to yell, it's going to go off and I'm not lying. The bomb squad was called and as everybody settled in to wait for them, Brian sat on the pavement, legs crossed and asked if someone called his boss so he wouldn't get in trouble for abandoning his job. Then the beeping started. Brian got fidgety with fear and all at once with a TV camera crew watching, the beeping turned into a deafening boom. 
Three minutes after the bomb went off, the bomb squad arrived. It was 3.18 p.m. While technicians began cleaning up the scene, investigators worked to unpack what the hell had just happened. Sorting through all of the physical evidence, police found a two-foot-long cane inside of Brian's car. That turned out to be a handmade gun. A strange necessity for a man delivering pizzas for a living. And in addition to the gun, they found a letter addressed to the, quote, bomb hostage, with careful details about what they expected of Brian during the heist as well as a set of complex instructions to find various keys and combinations hidden throughout Erie, complete with drawings, detailed maps, and a lot of devious threats. At the bottom of the note was an assurance that, if he did as he was told, he would get the keys to free himself from the homemade bomb. But if he failed, it would end up costing him his life. It all seemed like a macabre scavenger hunt that, given the complexity of his tasks, it was likely he would have never completed, even if the bank robbery was a success. The police, in an attempt to get some more information, completed all of the tasks laid out for Brian and found that some of the key items to the hunt were actually missing, indicating to them that the people responsible knew the police were involved, aborted their mission, and could possibly be watching them as they searched the city of Erie. There was also an added layer of mystery when police asked about the shirt that Brian was wearing. If you look at the photos of the day of the bombing, you can see Brian sitting in the middle of a parked police car wearing a Guess logo shirt, a shirt that was not the one he left for work wearing and, according to friends and family, wasn't even his. Could this be another taunt to Brian or maybe to the police? As every media outlet put out the stories about the movie-worthy crime, Experts took a closer look at the bomb itself to see if it provided any information. The device, which worked almost like a giant handcuff, consisted of two parts, a triple-banded metal collar with four keyholes and a three-digit combination lock, and an iron box with two six-inch pipe bombs loaded with a double-base smokeless powder. It was built with professional tools and contained two kitchen timers and one electric one giving a countdown. It was also filled with wires, both useful and decoys that led to nothing. Investigators, both local, state, and federal, worked to hunt down any leads in this puzzle-like story, heading first to Mamma Mia's Pizzeria, where Brian was working the day of the bombing. According to them, Brian was working at 1.30 that day when a call came in to order two small sausage and pepperoni pizzas to be delivered to the outskirts of the city. Brian, a 10-year veteran of the shop, offered to take the pizza despite being at the tail end of his shift. He walked out, two pies in hand, at 2 p.m. So they headed towards the drop-off location that the delivery was called to, driving down a long dirt road that ended at a TV transmission tower site. Combing the area, police found what they believed to be Brian's footprints and tire tracks, but no other clues as to who may have made the order or who met with him in the secluded area. Wanting a good story, a reporter and a photographer from the Erie Times News went to the tower the following day, and, though the area was cordoned off by police, saw a heavy-set man in denim overalls passing in front of his house situated nearby. The man was 59-year-old longtime resident Bill Rothstein. Bill seemed completely oblivious to what was happening in his own backyard, 
and eager to get a photo that no other paper had, the journalist asked if they could go through his yard to see the scene. He agreed. They found nothing of interest, thanked Bill, and drove off. Less than a month after the bombing, that same oblivious man made a phone call to 911 stating, At 8646 Peach Street in the garage, there is a frozen body. Within hours, he was in custody spilling his guts to police. According to Bill, who was in complete turmoil about what just happened in his home, he was on the verge of suicide, even writing a note found by police scavenging his home, which identified the frozen body as a man named Jim Roden, and added, quote, did not kill him nor participate in his death, and this has nothing to do with the Wells case. Curious, police pressed on, and over the course of two days, Bill explained how the dead man came to be in his freezer. According to his story, Bill received a call in mid-August from his ex-girlfriend, Marjorie Deal Armstrong, a woman he dated all the way back in the late 60s, early 70s. Marjorie explained to him that she had just shot her livid boyfriend, James Roden, with a 12-gauge shotgun and needed help cleaning up the scene, claiming the pair had a dispute over money that had just gotten out of hand. So Bill drove the 10 miles to her home and kept the corpse in his chest freezer for about five weeks while he melted down the pieces of the shotgun and disposed them all over Erie County. The plan was to grind up James's frozen body, but for one reason or another, Bill couldn't go through with it and called 911 out of fear of Marjorie's retaliation. On September 21st, 2003, the day after Bill's call to police, Marjorie Deal Armstrong was arrested for the murder of James Roden. Now, Marjorie was no stranger to local police. In fact, before she was even named a suspect in James's murder, Marjorie was considered one of Erie's most notorious women, known specifically for a string of deceased lovers dating all the way back to 1984 when she was charged with the murder of then-boyfriend Robert Thomas, a man she claimed she shot six times in self-defense and was acquitted. Four years later, it was her husband, Richard Armstrong, who died of a suspicious cerebral hemorrhage after a fall. Known for her dazzling personality and extreme intelligence, Marjorie started to show signs of bipolar disorder from a young age, in addition to paranoia with extreme narcissism. When police searched her home after the shooting of her boyfriend, they found 400 pounds of butter and more than 700 pounds of cheese all rotting inside her trash-filled home. Hence the debate back and forth about her competency to stand trial for the shooting. 16 months after her arrest for James Roden's murder, Marjorie pled guilty but mentally ill and was sentenced to 7 to 20 years in prison. Prior to her court appearance in July of 2004, Bill Rothstein died of lymphoma. Now, despite one key player's imprisonment and another's death, a team of federal agents got a call from a state police officer who interviewed Marjorie. He claimed that, during that interview, she said something that led him to believe Bill's suicide note may have been a lie, that Jim Roden's murder had everything to do with the eerie collar bomb. So they met with Marjorie for themselves, who said that if they could arrange her transfer to a minimum security prison in Cambridge Springs, she would tell them everything she knew. She was absolutely smart enough to construct the bomb, and elaborate scheme and seemed like a woman too narcissistic to let the heist go uncredited. 
But when they met to interview her, she insisted she was not involved in the plot, but did admit to knowing about it and supplying the kitchen timers. She also claimed that Brian Wells was not a victim in the bombing, but a willing participant in the heist who was killed by the mastermind who turned on him, Bill Rothstein. But according to four separate informants, Marjorie had been talking about intimate details of the heist while in prison. One even kept notes of their conversation in which Marjorie claims to have killed James Roden because, quote, he was going to tell about the robbery. She also bragged about helping to measure Brian Wells's neck to fit the collar. Then, a few months after Marjorie first met with the feds, another witness came forward to say that an ex-television repairman turned drug dealer named Kenneth Barnes was also involved. Kenneth was an old friend of Marjorie's and had spoken a little too candidly about the plans to his brother-in-law who then turned him in. Kenneth was already in jail for an unrelated drug charge, but when threatened with more jail time, he began to sing like a bird. According to the accomplice turned witness, it was Marjorie who was the real mastermind, something the investigators had long assumed, and that she planned the heist because, according to her, she needed money so she could pay Kenneth to kill her father, whom she believed was blowing through the money that she expected to inherit. According to Kenneth, he was kept in the dark about a number of aspects of the plot, but even with the little he did know, was enough to go full steam ahead towards Marjorie. Bringing her in once again on February 10th, 2006, agents told Marjorie and the attorney she brought that they had enough evidence to indict her, at which point she snapped and began slamming her fists on the table and cursing at every person in the room. When she calmed down, she agreed to drive around Erie with them to point out where she was the day that Brian Wells died. When the drive was over, she admitted to being connected to several locations linked to the crime, but said that she would provide no further information without being offered an immunity deal. But by the time she asked for a deal, she had already said too much, sealing her fate with police. In January of 2007, the U.S. Attorney's Office called a news conference and announced that, after a major break in the case, the investigation into the Erie Collar Bomb heist was complete. That Marjorie Deal Armstrong and Kenneth Barnes were being charged with the crime, as were a number of other co-conspirators, including the now-deceased Bill Rothstein and Brian Wells. Surmising from thousands of interviews and four years of investigation, that Brian was in on the plan from the very beginning. Going from fellow planner to unwilling participant in a matter of seconds after Marjorie decided to double-cross him. When this tidbit of information was announced... One of Brian's sisters repeatedly yelled out, liar, refusing to believe that her brother could be involved, a sentiment that many stand by. For so many, the announcement came as a shocking conclusion that failed to answer so many questions, leaving many to believe that this was simply a neatly placed bow on a case that the feds were unable to solve. Regardless, the wheels of justice continued on. Kenneth Barnes pleaded guilty to conspiracy and weapons charges in September of 2008 and was sentenced to 45 years behind bars with a promise to testify against Marjorie in hopes that his sentence would be reduced. Marjorie was deemed unfit to stand trial for quite some time. And when the ruling was finally reversed, she had been diagnosed with glandular cancer, postponing the trial even further. 
The doctors gave her three to seven months to live, and the prosecutors decided to press on with the trial. On October 26, 2010, the eighth day of trial, Marjorie finally got on the stand and told her side of the story. For the next five and a half hours and over the course of two days, Marjorie gave a one-woman show filled with ridicule for her lawyers, screaming, and long-winded banter, only once mentioning Brian Wells, and in just the last 10 minutes of her 100-minute long monologue, saying, I never met Brian Wells, and I never knew Brian Wells. Never. I became aware of him the day he died. I saw it on the news. When she was finished, the jury deliberated for 11 hours and came back with a guilty verdict on all three charges against her. She was sentenced to life plus 30 years on February 28, 2011. She died in prison of breast cancer on April 4, 2017, when she was 68 years old. For many, her guilty verdict was the final answer to a million questions about the bombing. For some, though, the ones who believe Brian was completely unaware of the scheme and Marjorie wasn't smart enough, the case remains unsolved, with many pointing to Bill Rothstein as the main culprit, a man who was able to die with all of his secrets intact. Thank you for joining me in my morning cup of murder. Please join me again tomorrow to hear what terrible thing happened on August 29th. Don't forget to rate and subscribe and let me know how you like it. If you want to help support the podcast, there's always Patreon or just sharing it with your true crime obsessed friends. And remember, stay safe.